do I think there's a scenario that is very frightening where Republicans win the Senate and pass with a majority vote terrible legislation? Absolutely. But do I think that's a reason not to act now when Democrats have this window? Heck no. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I welcome Sean Eldridge of Stand Up America back to the show. Sean is a political activist who's built a 2 million plus group of online progressives that you should know about because it's become a notable part of the progressive ecosystem. For more on Sean's biography, you should check out his first interview with me back in 2017. Sean talked about what Stand Up America did through 2020 and how he's redirected the group to fight for democracy since we defeated Trump. It's a good update. You should listen. So first to our sponsor, then my interview with Sean with Stand Up America. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Sean. Hey, Nathaniel. It's good to talk again. Yes. You know, you were episode seven on my podcast and I am now well over 700. So I feel like a connection through the time of this resistance to Trump and beyond with you. Um, And also you were episode 251 when we caught up after the 2018 election. So an honor to see you again. Well, congratulations on that many. And thank you for having me back. It's been a lot of fun for me. When we talked the first time we went through your biography and how you kind of came into this to starting Stand Up America, and then around then you had like a million people in your uh, network, and the next time you had about two million, and from your website it sounds like it stabilized around there, but that's a lot of people. I'm curious, like, what has happened since the beginning of 2019 when we last talked with respect to your group and your staff? What are the main developments that you've seen? Well, it's hard to believe we've passed the five-year anniversary of Stand Up America because we got started in November 2016. Now we're a little over five years. So I think since we last talked, two major things have happened. I mean, once, one, thank goodness, Donald Trump is out of the White House, thanks to the, the votes and the work of so many millions of Americans. And we at Stand Up America have really gone through a transition of, uh, of being one of the biggest, loudest Trump resistance groups to really being a democracy organization and focusing not only on the real threats that Donald Trump posed and continue to pose uh, to our democracy, but also trying to do more proactive work. You know, we spent so many years, all of us, uh, responding to every Trump tweet, every new threat that he posed to our democracy in any given day. Now, thank goodness, now that he's out of the White House, um, we at Stand Up America are focusing on building our democracy back better. And that means one, being clear-eyed about the continued threats that our democracy faces, but also trying to be optimistic about how we can build a more representative democracy and working on things like expanding voting rights, restoring voting rights to Americans who no longer have them, trying to reduce the impact of money in our political system, and take on big structural changes that we need, things like Supreme Court reform and expansion, in addition to obviously protecting the freedom to vote and dealing with the filibuster, which has been such a big obstacle. So 
as you mentioned, the size of our community uh, is about 2 million Americans, and that continues to be the case. Uh, our team is about 20 people now, so we've grown a bit in terms of our, our staff and our team since we last talked. And we've really started doing a, a mix of state advocacy, where we're fighting to protect and strengthen our democracy at the state level, as well as uh, working at the congressional level to pass big legislation. And our program has become more complex when you're trying to do state work at the same time as federal. Five years is a good chunk of time in any job. And when we last talked, I remember that you had, yeah, I don't know, you, I think you'd had a kid. You had made changes on the home front as well as on the work front. What's keeping you in this? Why so much duration at Stand of America? Well, now I have two kids. So <laughs> two kids and one, what, one pandemic baby. Our daughter was born uh, right as the pandemic was beginning. So that was an exciting challenge. What got me in this fight with Stand Up America was certainly responding to the unprecedented threat that I believed Donald Trump faced. But for me, the work we're doing at Stand Up America, in many ways, I, I've long been passionate about, which is even before Donald Trump was in the White House, our democracy has not been functioning well. As much as Trump is a singular threat to our democracy, a lot of what was broken was broken before he ran for office. And so before I started Stand Up America, I'd been working on issues like money and politics and, and working toward public financing of our elections so we can finally get the best candidate for the job, not the person who could just raise the most money. So in some ways, it's a return to my roots of, of working toward those that structural change and working to reform our campaign finance system. I think what keeps me in the fight, and I think I can probably speak for a lot of our team, is you know we, we just passed the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Obviously, Donald Trump left our democracy in shambles and left the White House kicking and screaming. Uh, one thing we were thinking about and planning and sort of worrying about as Stand Up America went on this transition from Trump resistance group to democracy organization was, would the energy still be there? Would people care enough to continue to make the phone calls? We're now at 1.7 million phone calls that Stand Up America members have made to Congress and state lawmakers. Would that kind of energy still be there? And I think the deadly insurrection at our nation's capital was just a terrible reminder of how real the threats still are, how broken our system continues to be, and, and how motivated opponents of democracy are. So I don't think there's been any lack of enthusiasm over the last year, particularly given the insurrection and given how far Trump went to pursue the big lie. And that's one big project that we had worked at at Stand Up America was knowing that Trump was not going to leave the White House calmly. I think the threats are very much in our face. And the last thing I would add is the fact that 19 states in the last year have passed 34 laws to make it more difficult for Americans to vote. We really are living through the worst voter suppression that we've seen in our country in well over a decade. So it's hard not to be motivated when you're seeing these threats that aren't just rhetoric. It's not just a lie that there are real barriers to the ballot box being erected. So all of that in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it's been a lot for all of us. Uh, I am every day grateful for our team and our members who, you know, are so tired two years into this pandemic on a personal level and a professional level, but just keep doing the work, keep fighting. One of the things that strikes me as a little bit difficult for a group like yours is finding the right balance between prodding forward action uh, by progressives and supporting an administration that's generally on our side. That applies in the States, but I'm thinking mainly nationally. I am so much happier with the Biden administration than I was with the Trump administration. I mean, on a daily basis, they generally have decent instincts. They seem to be trying to do the right things. They're putting good people in, in places. I'm frankly quite supportive of them, but there's also a role, particularly for progressive groups, to ask for more. How do you think about that balance? When I think about that, I think a lot of that for this year has come together around the debate around filibuster reform. And I think one thing that I had been disappointed by in particular with President Biden is the clarity and urgency with which he's been making the argument around the threats to our democracy and then how we actually could pass legislation and get something done. So I think that at the beginning of 2021, 
many of us understood that the, the administration faced unprecedented challenges. They had to tackle the pandemic. They had to tackle urgent economic threats and that they weren't going to get everything done on day one. And we needed to, in some ways, be patient and partner with them to make progress. I think as 2021 went by, as voter suppression got worse in the states, as the Republican agenda became very clear they were going to embrace the big lie and push these incredible undemocratic agenda forward, I think many of us, including myself, got impatient that we weren't hearing more leadership from President Biden around the need for voting rights legislation and how it could actually pass. Um, And in some ways, when it comes to filibuster reform, I sort of feel like we're talking about the F word. Some people in 2021 didn't really want to use the word and acknowledge that it was standing in the way. And I'm happy that now finally President Biden has embraced filibuster reform, acknowledge that that's what is needed on voting rights. But we were frustrated at Stand Up America that it took so long. One thing we did, we organized a petition and went to the White House and delivered over 400,000 petition signatures calling on President Biden to endorse filibuster reform. I had the honor of delivering that petition with John Lewis's family members, his siblings, um, who came to articulate better than I could what was at stake uh, and what we were fighting for. We've seen recently uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s family uh, and his kids speak up more about what they want to see from President Biden. So I actually don't even know if I see it as much as a progressive versus moderate debate as more of a just wanting the administration to do more on democracy and on voting rights. It's been more of a challenge than I'd hoped. You know, In his inaugural address, President Biden acknowledged the crisis. He has said a lot of the right things. He has not been burying his head in the sand. I think no one would accuse him of that. But we spent a lot of 2021 talking about infrastructure, a lot of 2021 talking about COVID. We didn't hear as much about the threat to our democracy. I hope we're going to hear more. I do too. And there's nothing that's, I mean, I'm more worried about the threats to democracy than I am about the plague and that I am about any particular other type of legislation. I agree with you that that's top of the list. The reality seems to be a lot of times, and with this in particular, that we're a couple votes short in the most frustrating way, in a way that, you know, we would like the administration to wave the wand and and get the votes. But a couple people with strong personalities and uh, strong beliefs like Manchin and cinema, if you want to give them the credit for that in that way, uh, seem immovable. Sometimes when you when you bug people like that, it backfires and they harden their position. What's the strategy when you when you are a couple votes short potentially on absolutely critical stuff? Well, I think when we when we won the Senate by a 50 slash 51 vote margin, I was pretty clear eyed that nothing was going to be easy and there was no guarantee we were going to pass anything. I do think, though, when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to other democracy legislation that we need, and it is more than just voting rights, there's no question that Manchin and Cinema have a have a potential veto power that is extremely frustrating and potentially very dangerous for our democracy. But I don't think that gets President Biden off the hook or Majority Leader Schumer off the hook from doing everything they possibly can to make the case and try to pass this legislation. And I think in 2021, when it came to President Biden, many of us didn't feel like he was doing everything he could. Now I think we're seeing more, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. And I honestly think that is in part thanks to the 2 million Stand Up America members and so many other groups and leaders across the country speaking up and demanding more. When it comes to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, you know, what we focus on is really making sure they're hearing from their constituents. We don't see ourselves as a national group jumping into West Virginia and telling West Virginians what they need their senator to do. What we try to do is make it as effective and easy as possible for our West Virginia members and our Arizona members to make that call, to send that letter to the editor, to go to an event. We think that's the most effective thing for those senators to hear from those constituents. So that's what we've been focused on. Will it be enough? I don't know. It's been heartening that Senator Manchin has said he is open to a talking filibuster. He's open to these slight reforms that could make the difference. Um, and I think we have to take those openings and, and make the case as powerfully as we can. And if Senator Manchin wants to single-handedly block voting rights or block the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which would stop future abuses of power by the president, 
I'm glad it's going to come to a vote and come to a head and that it needs to be clear that it's him who is blocking it, not anyone else. And again, on President Biden, you know, President Biden has the largest soapbox in the world. I think it's really important to be using that uh, to make the case as well as some of the private conversations that I know are happening. What do you think of the strategy that we seem to have of bundling all the things we want together in bills and and um, and trying to get them as a big mass across the finish line. Do you think that there's a strategy around breaking them up into lots of small bills and forcing votes one by one on on things that are popular and ought to be done? I've been wondering about that a bit. Well, I think the filibuster is in part to blame for that, right? The fact that within Build Back Better, and that's not something we've worked on uh, closely at Stand Up America, but the fact that there's the sense we have one vote on reconciliation, one budget opportunity to pass a lot, then you get these monster bills that have very complicated pieces and these big numbers attached to them in terms of spending. If you got rid of the filibuster, which is what I support, you would have a more normal process, which ironically, that's what Senator Manchin has said. He's craving this normal process where committees do their work and you get a bill to the floor. You would have more of that process, I think, if you had filibuster reform. I do wish the Senate had taken more votes We're grateful that the Freedom to Vote Act has had a vote, but the Protecting Our Democracy Act has not yet. Uh, Unless I'm wrong, I don't believe that gun safety legislation has had a vote uh, in the last year. Um, I don't believe that the Equality Act has had a vote, uh, which would provide protections for LGBTQ Americans. So there's a lot of bills that that didn't get a vote in in 2021 that I think should have. But I certainly would rather have a filibuster reform for voting rights, if that's all we can get. But I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the dysfunction has to do with the filibuster on other issues beyond democracy, things like gun safety. I mean, as as a dad, I just wake up almost every day not feeling like my kids are as safe as they could be in this country. And the fact that um, we haven't even had a vote on gun safety and we're letting the filibuster continue to stand in the way is, is maddening. Do you worry that... I mean, I kind of know what the standard answer to this is, but do you worry that if we get rid of the filibuster and they pick the majority back up in 2022 and the presidency back up in 2024, that we're going to see their version of voting legislation, which is nationalized voter suppression type laws, national voter ID requirements, the gamut of things that they are passing in the most conservative states going through by 50 plus one votes in in the Congress and being signed by the president? I think they're going to do it anyway. I think if, if we've learned anything about Mitch McConnell, it's what he has shown us that uh, when something is important to them, they find a way. Obviously, in 2017, Mitch McConnell led the charge to reform the filibuster for Supreme Court confirmations. And he got three Trump nominees on the bench with lifetime appointments with a majority vote. And he made that nuclear change because that was important to him. I think if they saw national voter suppression legislation as important, they would find a way to get it passed. Certainly, they were able to get the Trump corporate tax cuts through with reconciliation. So they managed to do that with a majority vote. So I think Mitch McConnell has shown us that Democratic norms and Senate precedent are not what he cares about. What he cares about are core pieces of that extreme conservative agenda. The fact that he was willing to confirm a Supreme Court nominee eight days before an election after millions of Americans had already cast their ballots make it pretty clear to all of us that these norms and these precedents don't don't matter that much to him. So do I think there's a scenario that is very frightening where Republicans win the Senate and pass with a majority vote terrible legislation? Absolutely. But do I think that's a reason not to act now when Democrats have this window? Heck no. And there's a real hypocrisy and something that I think is confusing to most Americans. We're seeing these 34 voter suppression bills pass at the state level with simple majority votes. And then we're demanding a supermajority to pass legislation to protect voting rights. You know, we're already seeing Republicans use majority votes at the state level to suppress the vote. It just simply doesn't make sense to anyone, I don't think, who, who doesn't work in politics, that we would require a supermajority. We are all together too fast approaching the 2022 midterms. I can't believe how quickly that's going to be right on us. What will your group be doing uh, to try to hold on to the 
slim majorities we have. It's just very hard for the party in power to stay in power. Yeah. Well, we're very much in planning stages right now for the 2022 election. When it comes to electoral work, I think what we do uniquely at Stand Up America is, you know, there's there's a lot of digital programs that are focused on fundraising. There's a lot of programs that are just run on focused on running uh, big ad buys and trying to do a lot of the persuasion that you see. What we really focus on is is trying to give our members actions that they can take. So, what we did in 2020, I think, is a pretty good model for what we could do in 2022. Um, in 2020, we had 8,000 volunteers, remote volunteers in a Slack channel uh, who were very active in helping to get out the vote. Our volunteers sent 44 million peer-to-peer texts to help register voters, to try to help get out the vote. We've run phone banks. Uh, we were part of letter writing campaigns where we partnered with a group called Vote Forward. They ended up sending millions of letters uh, to help get out the vote, particularly in key states. So we're on the mobilizing side of things and we're looking certainly at at federal races like the Senate and House where we can plug our members into volunteer opportunities. But I also think um, it's important to also consider races like Secretary of State races, AG races at the state level. Because if we think about who are really the guardians of our democracy right now, those state officials could play a really important role in 2024 and beyond in preserving our elections and preserving our democracy. So I would imagine a mix of uh, national mobilization for federal races and looking at some of those key secretary of state and AG races. We also are very focused on making progress where we can on democracy issues. So I hope and I expect there'll be some ballot initiatives this year in states where you could see progress on money and politics and perhaps voting rights. National politics and federal politics get a lot more attention on almost every issue when it comes to what you see on the news and what you read. But I really believe that our states are where a lot of the action is, and they really are the laboratory of democracy. So particularly if we are not successful at passing federal voting rights legislation this year, then we're going to be working in the states to try to stop any new voter suppression bills and try to help pass ballot initiatives and other proactive measures where we can. And we, we did a lot of that last year where we helped pass restoration rights for formerly incarcerated New Yorkers, uh, similar legislation in Connecticut. Uh, we've been working in states like Illinois and Oregon to try to enable folks to vote who are incarcerated currently uh, and working on issues like money and politics and public financing. So we've got our hands full because there's a lot of work to do on the democracy front. What we try to do is help our members be aware of what's possible and happening in their state and then make it easy for them to take action. I recently had as a guest uh, for the second time, a professor named Hari Han, who writes a lot about the relationship between a group and its constituency leadership in its constituency. One of the ways I understand that anyway, is that you have a lot more power if that relationship is very close and the people know that you can bring a lot of grassroots effort to something that you say that you will. How much do you think about that relationship between you and your staff and 2 million people, uh, which I assume have very varied degrees of engagement how do you like work to make the most use of the people who who can listen to you or tell you what ought to be done yeah i think i think that's a challenge particularly with digital organizing right where you're not out there in the field face to face with people and you can hear them loudly we try to do that in a number of different ways you know one thing we do is uh unlike with some programs uh we have an SMS program where we have nearly half a million Americans who are part of our SMS list and we have a pretty sizable email list. When people text us back, when people email us, we listen, we engage with them. We actually spend the time to do that sort of customer service and back and forth because I think that's that's important and we'll often hear things that are important from our members. I think with our volunteer program, having 8,000 people in a Slack is great because they can talk to each other. You can build some of that digital community and our organizers and our team can can have that back and forth with our members. And, and we've tried to do a better job too of spotlighting who our members are and why they're taking action. We have a monthly newsletter to our, to our community and, and often we will uh, spotlight the stories and voices of, of our own members and why they're taking action. So it's a challenge as a national organization. And I think we're, we're not as close to the ground as some of our state partners and um, 
local partners. And I think knowing that and being honest about that is important. When when we come in and we do state work and local work, I think the most important thing we can be doing is meeting with a diverse set of leaders, trying to understand the landscape, listening about what they want and need from a national group and not parachuting in. So we, we spend a lot of time on that as well, because if you're doing state advocacy and over a dozen states like we did last year, you have to have a lot of humility about uh, where they really want help. This may echo a bit too much a question I asked earlier, but it's in my mind a lot. I feel like there's not enough pro-democratic, pro-administration message out there. We are disgruntled with the other side like crazy, but we're also kind of critical of our own is that something that finds a place with you or where where in the ecosystem should we look to that? Yeah, I feel like sometimes in the progressive advocacy world, there's the concern that if you are criticizing Democrats, you will hurt their chances of winning the next election. And one thing I think about is just right now we're in January of 2022. The election is not tomorrow. What we are really asking for is is action from our legislative leaders now. I think it is one thing to be closer to the election in the middle of election season and criticizing Democrats then versus, you know, asking Democrats to do what the American people voted for and, you know, being almost a year out from an election. I think that's a different dynamic. As we get closer and closer to November of 2022, I think all of us need to be talking about the real choice that American voters face, whether it's a state race or a federal race, um, why it's so important to vote, because I'm really worried about drop-off in the midterms, obviously historically having much lower uh, turnout than a presidential year. But it's not October of 2022, right? It's January. And I think um, we we can't be constantly in the middle of an election season or else we'll get nothing done. I, I think one thing I'm happy about with voting rights coming to a head and filibuster reform coming to a head is that it looks like we will have at least 48 Democratic senators vote the right way on reforming the filibuster to protect our freedom to vote. I think that's important to show that if it's really 48 Democratic senators doing the right thing, two who are problematic, and then 50 Republican senators who are trying to undermine our democracy, that should be clarifying for ahead of the election of, of what we need, right? That means we need to not only stop more anti-Democratic Republicans from winning, but we need more uh, Democratic senators who are willing to put the freedom to vote ahead of the filibuster um, and on other issues as well. So I, you said this earlier, I think sometimes it's important to take these votes on the floor of the Senate to show where people stand. And I'm glad that at least some of these issues are not quietly going away, but are going to go away in a really visible way. There's a dynamic in our country where the energy is with the resistance side, the side that's not happy, the side that's angry uh, about legislation or who's in charge. And we constantly flip back and forth because of that. They don't like Obamacare. They knock us out. Can you think of how we can change that dynamic to any degree going into this next midterm? How can we keep the blame on the party that really deserves it right now, that really screwed up the beginning of COVID, that really tried to steal the election, you know, when they're just even more loudly screaming that that it's our fault. Well, if I could figure that out, I would make a lot of money as a political <laughs> consultant. But obviously, history shows that midterm elections are extremely hard for a sitting president. It, it is hard to change that, but I'm not totally fatalistic about it. Something that gives me hope, perhaps it's naive, but is that we saw a lot of unprecedented political engagement during the Trump administration. We saw a lot of people get off the sidelines who'd been on the sidelines, vote for the first time, volunteer for the first time, march for the first time. If we all do our jobs as organizers and mobilizers and communicators, I think we have a shot at having a better turnout in the 2022 election than we have had in previous elections. Whether we can convince people that President Biden has has done enough, I, I don't know, but he's not on the ballot again until 2024 if he runs again. But I think if we had high turnout and we talked about the choice that voters face and we talk about the stakes for our democracy and on other issues, then we then we do have a shot. And I what I actually worry about more is just the, the complacency that midterm elections somehow don't matter. I'm going to guarantee high turnout on the other side. 
the question will be, can we get really high turnout for a midterm? I'm not sure how to square that circle. I'm not a political consultant either. I'm just a uh, concerned citizen. But I know that you're very embedded in this in this moment and just curious about your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, look, I share the concern and I think it's it it's a perfect storm if we also at the same time let them get away with extreme partisan gerrymandering, which was already benefiting Republicans, and we'll see where the maps fall this yeah, year. It's but been a little less bad than than our worst fears, although yeah, I'm and, still and pretty both worried. sides are doing their gerrymandering where they have the chance. Yeah. No, I'm I'm still pretty worried because I think it could be even a slight advantage for Republicans. It's all with down the to a few seats. And they already had so gerrymandered things a decade ago. So it's a real concern because we, we are a divided country. There's no question about that. But if we struggle to get people to show up in the midterm elections and even a slight advantage from gerrymandering, um, I, I don't like to use the word rigged very much because that sounds sort of Trumpian. And Sandersian. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. So not even rigged, but they are they are building these undemocratic barriers and and, and shaping a system where politicians get to choose their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians. What they are doing is creating this system where they who are in power get to decide, draw the lines, have a lot of power over who can who can win the election. It's a serious problem. Um, and I think until Trump, I think we have underestimated uh, as progressives um, how important these issues are. Have you paid attention to the uh, sort of nonpartisan typically or bipartisan political reform efforts around final five voting or different changes to the primary process to make that nonpartisan, send the top X number of people forward and then uh, vote like Maine does on the rest. Some people are arguing now fairly persuasively that you would be forced to cultivate a broader majority within the district, uh, which might alleviate some of the problems with gerrymandering and some of the problems with the way our districts are producing people skewed to the edges right now. Well, I'm, I'm no expert on, on that particular issue, but certainly following it, aware of it, I think a lot of people are, are thinking about it as how do you and can you fix the Republican Party? Can you find a way to make sure that less extreme voices are winning? I think ranked choice voting is something that I'm increasingly excited about. I got to vote in New York with ranked choice voting and, and got to see that play out. And I think it's an exciting reform. The idea of pursuing uh, these reforms at the state level, I think, is exactly what the laboratory of democracy is for. If we can show that these systems work to more accurately reflect the will of the people or moderate extreme voices, I think that would be great. To me, the issue that doesn't get nearly enough attention right now still is money in politics. In 2020, we had a $14 billion federal election, and pretty much none of us were talking about that as a problem because we were so focused on other urgent issues like voter suppression and Donald Trump not wanting to leave the White House. I don't have a problem with money in politics. I have a problem with whose money. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I think things like public financing of elections that you know I was involved in in Seattle a few years back, where they created a, a voucher system where uh, every Seattle voter um, has twenty five dollars, two twenty five dollars vouchers that they can give. To system. If we can show these small dollar matching systems, these voucher systems uh, in New York City, we've had for over thirty years a version of small dollar public financing. I think that's. The beauty of our federalism is that we have a chance at the state and local level of showing these other models. So I'm for this, and I, I wish we were seeing more of those reforms uh, push forward. I think we've been rightly so focused on Trump and that threat that um, there haven't been as much movement on these other reforms as, as I would have hoped for. When we talked before, I asked you a question about your allies in the ecosystem, the other groups, and groups like Indivisible, groups like NARAL groups that came up around the same time as you and ones that had a longer run. How has that changed over the last couple of years? What do you see going on in sort of the, the big grassroots progressive group part of the ecosystem? Well, I'm happy to say that I think even after Trump has left office, there's some pretty good unity. You know, we, in, in, in the progressive 
coalition working space, there's, you know, there's not always been functionality and there's always certain degrees of uh, competitiveness. But I think particularly around things like the Freedom to Vote Act, there's a really good coalition of groups working together, dividing up the labor. One partnership we had over the last year was newer, was with uh, Fair Fight, the organization that Stacey Abrams founded. One thing I think we bring to the table is um, a digital expertise and a set of digital tools that make it easy for folks to take action. So in partnership with Fair Fight, we were able to drive over 150,000 calls to the Senate, engaging their members using Stacey Labrum's um, leadership and her voice and our digital tools. We partnered together on a joint uh, uh, phone number and hotline and set of uh, constituent call tools so that neither organization had to reinvent the wheel and they could lean on our expertise and we could lean on theirs. So we've been doing a lot more of that. And at the state, state level too, where we'll come into coalition spaces and they uh, have local expertise and they have local lobbyists, but we can provide digital tools or um, a digital partnership. So I, th I think it's going pretty well. And especially with the Freedom to Vote Act, there's so much work that needs to be done that organizations are coordinating and talking frequently and dividing up the labor. And as we were talking about earlier, this 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 fear that I that I had that I still think is real of would the enthusiasm still be there? Would some of these groups still exist after Trump? I think that enthusiasm. It is still there and, and the threats are, are very real. And hopefully we'll continue to see that as we head toward the midterms. So you don't think we've relaxed too much? I wouldn't say that engagement is as high as during the Trump impeachments or some of, you know, during family separation where we saw over 20,000 people calling their members in one day, uh, you know, on our on our tools. I think some Americans have certainly relaxed. I think there's a, a core group of, of progressive activists who are very much awake and staying involved and pushing. I think part of our job as progressive advocates and leaders this year is to make sure our friends and family and people we know aren't relaxing too much because that's a real worry. And it relates to what we were talking about before around whether people will bother to vote in the midterms, people who did show up in 2020. I don't know how to ask this question, but let me give it a shot. My political radar says to me, we're going to lose the Congress in 2022. And in 2024, unless there's a major change in the economy and the pandemic, we're going to lose the presidential election to whoever they put up on the other side. I'm not saying for sure, but I'm saying that's what happens when the economy is not good in a two-party democracy absent a major war or whatever, we're more or less in a war with the other party for the democracy. Trump has said he's going to run again. He has the polling to win that nomination. If he proceeds and his health holds up, he has a way better than small chance of being the next president. It's just an incredibly grim prospect from my point of view, and I'm sure from yours. Do you think that's, that opinion of mine is shared in these grassroots progressive groups? And are, are we doing what we need to do to, to line up a broad coalition to defeat that? Because it's not going to be just the 8 million most progressive, most committed people. It's going to take, you know greater than 50% of a high turnout election. I share some of those concerns. I mean, 2024 feels far off to me, even though I know it's not. It feels far off. I, I think everybody is pretty wide-eyed about the challenges of 2022 and the historic trends and the the challenge and the importance of, of getting out the vote. So I, I think there's people committed to doing the work and doing as, as well as we can on that front. With 2024, you know, so much can change and the economy will change and the pandemic will change in unpredictable ways. And so we will see. I mean, I am still very angry, particularly as we just recently marked the anniversary of January 6th, the fact that Senate Republicans, when they had the chance to impeach and then disqualify Trump from running again. I mean, we were relatively close to, to making that, that happen. That was just a monumental failure an irresponsible move by you only needed a small number of them, right? What, 18 of them or something, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, we, we were very close. Yeah, we were very close. And that was Mitch McConnell. He chickened out at the brink and he 
would have gone down in history as a different figure if he'd made that change. But we, but it didn't happen. Yeah, we're living with that and the consequences of that. And certainly in that moment, we pushed hard on impeachment and removal because we knew that this was not just about uh, what had happened, but what could happen in the future. Look, I think if Trump runs again, I, th- I think we can beat him and we beat him in 2020. And I think we will all do everything we can to beat him again. But I think um, thinking about 2022 as that that stepping stone to 2024 is so important because this attempt to undermine our democracy and make it easier for someone like Trump to steal an election without a deadly insurrection, those forces, those attempts are real. And I, I think what's hard as an advocate and as an activist is it's not really in my demeanor to exaggerate and get really hyperbolic about the threats. And when you say something like our democracy is at stake, right? Either you sound like you're using. Now, I hear that constantly from from the most active people. Yeah. And I, I say that all the time and I believe our democracy is at stake. But, but when, you, when you say something like they are going to steal the next election or, you know, we are on the brink. I think they're going to tilt the battlefield as much as they can. I'm worried they could win it outright um, based on just, you know, aggregate dissatisfaction with the way the country's going. Most of these elections have been very, very close lately and their attempts to tip the battlefield are likely to make a difference, will make a difference. Although some of them may backfire in ways that they don't know because politics is tricky, but I mean, this is where we are. Yeah. No, look, I, I share a lot of the worries and what I meant on the, the, the rhetoric and I mean, it, it is real, right? The threats are real. And, uh, if we don't see those threats after a deadly insurrection, if you had said a month before, this is what's going to happen in our capital, people would look at you like you were crazy and totally overreacting. We see the threats after a deadly insurrection, but there's a whole echo chamber that is hearing completely different story about it, right? And we have very little ability to change the fact that half the citizenry is watching Fox News and related media outlets. Yeah. Well, I think um, that is where I, as a nonprofit leader, as an advocate, have a lot of humility about how many parts of this work are important, how many pieces are there, right? The, the need to fight back against disinformation, the need to hold tech companies accountable for their role in all of this and where we move forward, the need to be thinking about media and the future of media and how we're getting the truth out, let alone a progressive message, just the, the basic truth. I mean, these are really complex problems. I think many, many are rising to the challenge, but the challenge is is enormous. I think a lot of people, when they think about politics, sort of imagine there's some command and control room somewhere in the Democratic headquarters, somewhere people are figuring it out. There's no chief propagandist. There's no, there's nobody in charge of our message. We are a armada of many ships, many small boats, many individual people. And just finding alignment is a big challenge for for leaders and for followers. Yeah. And that is where I think, um, again, going to the voting rights and the, the filibuster fight, I think um, progressive groups have been thoughtful about what is our message? How are we coordinating? How are we talking about that? We need to continue to do a better job of that. And um, I don't work on a lot of the economic issues that we're seeing, but I think similarly, we, you know, we need to put the strongest message forward in a in a more coordinated way. I'm not that old, but I I grew up with uh, a media ecosystem where we all had a lot more shared content and shared channels that we watched and newspapers we read, and we're all content creators. We're all putting out our own message, and it's it's very complex. We are very fortunate, Stand Up America, that we we reach millions of people every week on social media, and we take that responsibility seriously to put forward a truthful and hopefully inspiring message. You've now been running it for in excess of five years, as you said. What have you learned about leadership in that time? How have you developed yourself in that regard? 
I've learned you can't do it all yourself or on your own. I, I am very hands-on at Stand Up America and in our early days was extremely hands-on and was building the ship with a couple of other great early partners. One thing I've learned is to really build out our, our senior leadership team. And so I'm the founder and president of Stand Up America. We now have an executive director, Christina Harvey, who comes to us with over a decade of, of state uh, experience of working in the state Senate and working for the New York State AG, just a great leader. Yeah, I've, I've learned that building that bench is so important to to accomplishing anything and uh, being humble around planning because for five years it's hard as an organizational leader especially in what uh, what we work on you know we have a strategic plan we have a vision for the country but trying to find that blend of that long-term strategy and reacting to what's happening on the ground just being flexible about that give and take to say the least we had to deal with that in the Trump era as well and it's great that Trump is not on Twitter because we really did all react to his tweets quite a bit. I think it is important to, even when someone as terrible as Trump has the microphone or God forbid has the White House, there has to be some of that longer term planning and not just always reacting. What's your aspiration with the group? Where do you want to take it? Say, say we talk again in two or three years, what would you like to have seen happen with your group? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm excited that I think today we are one of the biggest progressive democracy groups in the country. There's a couple of others who we who we partner with that are at a similar scale, but um you know, we are really leaning in on being that that grassroots army that can help to protect our democracy, pass and expand voting rights, reduce the impact of big money in politics and take on the longer term structural change, things like Supreme Court expansion, electoral college reform. That identity is is newer for us because we were this Trump resistance group. And now we are this pro-democracy group that doesn't just focus on Trump. I'd love two years from now for us to have uh, a number of solid state wins where we are building this better model for our democracy. I mean, hopefully the Freedom to Vote Act will pass and that would create national standards for voting access. But then still we have a lot of work to do, whether it's things around public financing or what we were talking about earlier, ranked choice voting, other creative ways to make our democracy more representative. Um, as a digital first organization, I think one challenge we have is having to continue to innovate. The rules change, the tools change, the compliance changes. So the program we were running five years ago is different than the program we're running now. And so that's exciting and challenging, but figuring out is peer-to-peer -peer texting going to still exist in a year? If it, does it look the same? Uh, what, are, what are new tools for how we can reach people? We started off as very dependent on Facebook to reach our members. Now we're more oriented around things like SMS. So that is an exciting challenge just to be talking to tool creators and keeping our ear out. So, you know, I, I hope two years from now that that we're, we're bigger, we have more uh, tangible uh, accomplishments, and hopefully we'll have federal voting rights legislation one way or another um, two years from now. And I also hope we continue to help build a model for digital organizing and mobilizing that is respectful of our members. I understand how important grassroots fundraising is for campaigns and candidates and organizations, there's no question. But it, I think it's been frustrating to see some email programs, some SMS programs, some um, of the types of digital organizing that don't always treat their members with respect or as real people at the other end and try to have a two-way conversation and try to be honest about, you know, there's very shrill fundraising email programs that say the sky is falling every single day if you don't give $5. You know, we really try to lay out what's happening in the political environment and why people's voices needed in a respectful way. And I think we need more of that in the progressive digital infrastructure because we're at risk of exhausting our members, exhausting the lists and having people tune out. So I hope we can be a, a, a model of what's possible. I know your husband was in at the beginning at Facebook and then worked for Obama and, and has a long time interest in this. Do you guys fund Stand Up America yourself or do you get funds anywhere else? Yeah, no. Well, we're very fortunate that I can talk about this, the grassroots fundraising model, because I, I support uh, a majority of Stand Up America's core operating budget. We have over 15,000 grassroots donors who do help support us. And then we have had some other funding partnerships in, in various aspects of our work. We are fortunate to be able to run the program in a way that the fundraising can be a, a small piece of it, but not the main focus. But you know, as, as someone who has seen money in politics in this from a unique set of advantage points as a donor, 
as an activist, as a candidate back in 2014, I'm extremely fortunate that I have the resources to try to help out and uh, be involved in the political process. But it makes me all the more passionate that we need to change where the money is coming from in our political system and not just rely on uh, major donors to, to do the right thing because far too often they are not. Do you watch the the donors that come out of Silicon Valley? There's you know, quite a number now who have had great good fortune and have gotten interested in politics, whether it's, you know, people from LinkedIn or Facebook or the whole gamut of, of uh, tech firms that have, that have reached gigantic scale. Do you pay attention to that world? Yeah, absolutely. There's more money than ever in our politics and that frustrates me, but clearly there were a lot of people who got involved um, to help try to defeat Trump, to, to, to try to be innovative. And, um, and that is certainly, certainly happening. I think when folks get involved in politics for the first time, it is important to be humble. You know, I, I lived in Silicon Valley briefly, and now I live on the East Coast. Sometimes there can be an ethos in Silicon Valley that they've got it figured out and, you know, uh, folks on the East Coast or DC haven't. So um, I, I certainly try to try to be helpful and, and share perspectives. And we try to partner at Stand Up America with others. Um, I think Silicon Valley in particular has a lot of soul searching to do about their role in our democracy and uh, the, you know, some of the tools that have been created and certainly on social media, the impact that's having on our democracy. I envision just a really different world where the role of C4s in terms of funding, the role of big donors in terms of super PACs, the role, I think we rely too much as a country on big donors and philanthropy as potential solutions to our problems. And I, and I don't think that that uh, is the right path forward. I, I really envision a country where uh, with things like public financing of our elections, candidates can figure out the best campaign that they want to run to try to be competitive. I don't think wealthy Americans, you know, have all the answers and we can just, we can wait for them to show up. So in the meantime, we're living in this political landscape where billions of dollars get spent on both sides and we absolutely have to compete. But I hope we get to a place where large donors have much less influence on our campaigns, on the political process. And beyond politics, honestly, when it comes to solving the big problems that our country faces from healthcare to economic security, you know, I'm excited about building a government that can tackle those problems at scale rather than waiting for the generosity for certain donors. I'd rather see a country where we tax wealthy people in more consistent and reasonable ways and have the resources we need to take care of working families. So it's it's pretty broken now in terms of our, our, our political system and our economic system. But I think Trump woke a lot of people up who may not be as progressive as I am, but really understood that the the stakes were high and trying to have an impact in their own way. Is there a question I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked? I don't know. We've, we've covered a lot. Again, I'm honored to be, uh, did you say 700? I'm number 700. <laughs> By the time this comes out, it'll be over probably over 720, 725, something. I don't know. I haven't looked at the number yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a lot. I, yeah, no, I, it's great. It's great to be back on. And uh, it's, it's, I know you have such an interesting mix of different folks and leaders and intellectuals who come on the program. So happy to be part of that conversation. Well, I, I appreciate you for taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, thanks. Thanks for having me on. That was Sean Eldridge. He's at standupamerica.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.